Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Well guys, you made it. It is Friday. The weekend is here. Palmetto Seeds Armory deal is one that I've already shared, but not here. So I'm going to tell you guys about this badass little Beretta APX A1 9mm. You can snag it for $179.99 after a $50 rebate. Uh, Palmetto State Armory also does a fantastic job and lets you file for the rebate directly from their site when you make a purchase. So it's super easy. I love this little gun. The link, as always, is in the show description. Please go uh, check it out and see if you would like one for yourself. Um, There's no reason not to carry a 9mm handgun for $179.99 from Beretta. Like, it's... You just need to go get it. Um, Okay, we're going to start the show off with a bit of a laugh this morning. There is nothing I enjoy more then Ian Milheiser's tears and another Vox opinion piece of sadness about all the big bad guns in the world. The headline says, a new Supreme Court case could allow criminals to get guns with background checks. The fight over ghost guns arrives on the court's shadow docket. <laughs> uh, last month, a federal judge handed down a decision that would... Uh, essentially create a loophole in U.S. gun laws. Um, And Ian says that this judge creatively reads the law to achieve conservative policy outcomes. You mean he reads the fucking Constitution? Um, He says now it's up to the Supreme Court to decide whether to let this decision, which would make it quite easy for violent criminals to obtain firearms, go into effect. And I don't know if you know this or not, bro, but criminals already easily acquire guns. It happens every day. They acquire them. They kill people with them. Happens all the time. Just FYI. I know that's probably really scary for you. Um, (laughs) the case involves so-called ghost guns, weapons that are sold dismantled in ready to assemble kits, which by the way, Palmetto State Armory has one of those for sale also. Um, it's on their daily deals page. You should go grab that too. I think it's like $2.99 for a Blem AR-15. All day long, go get it. Um, Judge O'Connor's opinion in Vanderstock v. Garland would effectively immunize these weapons from federal laws requiring gun buyers to submit to a background check, as well as laws requiring guns to have serial numbers, which can be used to track them. The laws requiring background checks and serial numbers apply, quote, to any weapon which will or is designed to or may readily be converted to expel a projectile by the action of an explosive. That's the the actual legal definition. It also applies to the frame or receiver of any such weapon, which is bullshit. And that's up for debate right now, too. Um. And it's, he says the skeletal part of a firearm that houses other components, such as the barrel or trigger mechanism. Thus, 
even if someone purchases a series of firearm parts to assemble a gun at home, they will still face a background check when they purchase the gun's frame or receiver. Ghost guns are often sold as kits, a collection of gun parts that can be assembled into a functional gun. Often, the frame or receiver in this kit is sold in a condition that isn't entirely ready for use, though. According to the Justice Department, these incomplete frames and receivers are often very easy to finish. And so you can just hear, like, he's so angry in, in the way he writes. In some cases, a ghost gun buyer can build a working gun after drilling a single additional hole in the kit's frame. In other cases, they merely need to sand off a small plastic rail. Nevertheless, O'Connor ruled in his Vanderstock decision that these kits are exempt from the background check and serial number laws. Recall, these laws apply to any weapon that can be readily converted to expel a projectile. O'Connor reasoned that weapon parts are not weapons, because they're not. Um, only a fully complete firearm is. And thus, the kit as a whole does not count as a weapon. Shocker, I know, like if you buy a Lego kit, if you buy one, and the main part of the Lego kit is not in the box, you don't have an entirely assembled working Lego project. It's, it's incomplete. It is not finished. Similarly, O'Connor also claimed that almost entirely complete receivers sold with ghost gun kits do not count as receivers under federal law because that which may become or may be converted to a functional receiver is not itself a receiver. I, I feel like this is hard for Ian to understand. There are additional steps necessary to take for the completion of this, which means that it's not. It's, it's very literal. Under O'Connor's reasoning, it does not matter if a gun buyer would only need to make the most minimal effort to finish the receiver contained in the ghost gun kit. The stakes in the Vanderstock case are enormous. Most importantly, O'Connor's decision would allow these untraceable firearms to proliferate. A growing problem because 3D printers and other new technology make it fairly simple to produce these guns. That's actually factually incorrect. The amount of time and effort and skill that it takes to create a 3D printed gun is not, quote, fairly simple. Ian is one of those people who says, it should be as hard to buy a gun as it is for me to buy gum in the candy store. It's a bad faith argument operating on the premise that the average reader doesn't know what actually goes into 3D printing a functional firearm. As the Justice Department warns the justices, tens of thousands of ghost guns are recovered by law enforcement each year. What Ian doesn't tell you here is that not all of these quote-unquote ghost guns were 3D printed. Many of them, arguably most of them, are regular firearms that have been acquired illegally, had their serial numbers scraped off, like etched off of the, the gun, because they are going to be used in crimes. <laughs> 
which would still happen even if the Supreme Court rejected this decision. Criminals are criminals. They're going to acquire weapons. They're going to commit crimes. That's going to happen. You cannot punish law-abiding citizens by removing their right to keep and bear arms because you want to favor criminal behavior or, or use criminal behavior as an excuse. Those criminals will continue to get these firearms. They're already committing crimes. It, it blows my mind that these people don't understand this. And then he goes on to like list numbers. He goes, more than 19,000 in 2021, a one thousand percent increase from 2017. Oh, do you smell that fear? The fear of free men and women exercising their rights without governmental interference or tracking? Vanderstock also asks whether a single federal trial judge should be allowed to set policy for the entire nation. I don't know that I agree with this, but um, O'Connor is this is Ian's statement. O'Connor is best known for his failed attempt to invalidate Obamacare in its entirety and for another failed attempt to override the U.S. Navy's decision that personnel who refuse a COVID-19 vaccine are fit unfit for deployment. O'Connor's decision suggests that a firearm in any state of incompleteness is actually not a firearm at all. He argues that a collection, I want you guys to listen to this part, a collection of parts that can be assembled into a firearm does not count as a weapon because none of the individual parts are themselves weapons. And he claims that a frame or receiver that is just one easy step away from being ready to use and that most likely was sold in this light, slightly incomplete state for the very purpose of evading federal law is also immune from the background check and serial number requirements. Philosophers can certainly debate at what point in the assembly process a collection of metal and plastic becomes a firearm. A company that sells unworked blocks of pure stainless steel, for example, shouldn't be subject to federal gun regulation simply because a skilled gunsmith could, with specialized tools and enough time, make a firearm using this metal. At the same time, it makes no sense to say that a gun ceases to be a gun simply because it's not fully assembled. That were the case, gun sellers could evade federal law simply by selling handguns with the clip removed from the remainder of the gun. Or the clip. Don't worry, I caught it. Or with some other detached piece that can be readily reattached. Forgive me for not taking him seriously, considering he makes the exact opposite argument when discussing human life. It makes no sense to say that a clump of fetal cells is a baby since it's not fully assembled. Sound familiar? Ian goes through a whole diatribe of boo-hoo bootlicking and I got tired of reading it at about this point, but it's linked in the show description if you would like to read a grown man who writes like Chicken Little. Um, next up, China is leading the way in being responsible adults for the future generation of their country, and I can't believe I'm saying that. China's internet watchdog has laid out regulations 
to curb the amount of time children spend on their smartphones. In the latest blow, two firms such as Tencent and ByteDance, which run social media platforms and online games, the Cyberspace Administration of China on Wednesday published the draft guidelines on its site, stating that minors would not be allowed to use most internet services on mobile devices from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., and that children between the ages of 16 and 18 would only be allowed to use the internet for two hours a day. Children between 8 and 15 would be allowed only one hour a day, while those under 8 would only be allowed 40 minutes. Allowed 40 minutes. Only certain services, such as apps or platforms, that are deemed suitable to the physical and mental develop of minors will be exempted. The CAC did not specify which internet services would be allowed exemptions, but the restrictions are Beijing's latest efforts to attempt to limit internet addiction, a problem it views as widespread among its youth. In 2019, Beijing limited children's daily online game time to 90 minutes a day and tightened those restrictions in 2021, allowing children only an hour a day of online gameplay on Fridays, weekends, and public holidays. Short video and online video platforms like Douyin, Bilibili, and Kuaishou have offered youth modes that restrict the type of content shown to minors and the length of time that they can use the service. Children are also pushed educational content, such as science experiments. The latest restrictions would impact firms like Tencent, China's largest online game company, and ByteDance, which runs popular short video platform Douyin. Firms in China are often responsible for enforcing regulations to effectively strengthen the online protection of minors. The CAC has in recent years pushed for the establishment of a youth mode on internet platforms, expanding its coverage, optimizing its functions, and enriching it with age-appropriate content. Since the mode was launched, there's been a positive impact in reducing youth internet addiction and the impact of undesirable information, it added. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The CAC said draft guidelines were open to public feedback until September 2nd. It did not say when the new rules would go into effect. Now, I don't believe it's the government's place to do this. Uh, I think that obviously, like, this is pretty egregious. And I would be livid if the United States thought that it was their responsibility to restrict how much time my child utilized their device. However, I also don't believe that many or even all parents see how damaging and awful social media is for their children and they allow it on a regular basis. So, you know, there's probably a delicate balance there that probably needs to be addressed and found. Okay. As you guys know, I usually don't focus on local politics, but this one has me a little bit fired up. So I figured I'd share it with you guys. In the seventh court of appeals, uh, Indiana students now must have access to bathrooms and locker rooms that are consistent with the gender identity. And the seventh Circuit Court of Appeals left in place a temporary injunction requiring 
the Metropolitan School District of Martinsville and the Vigo County School Corporation to provide equal treatment to trans students. The case involves three young trans students who sued the school district after they were blocked from using the boys' restrooms. At the time of the complaint, one of the teens attended a middle school in Martinsville. The other two, who are twin brothers, attended high school in Terre Haute. The lawsuit filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana and the nonprofit law firm Indiana Legal Services alleges sex discrimination in violation of Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The teens also requested a preliminary injunction that would order schools to grant them access to the facilities while the lawsuit moves forward. Last year, two lower courts granted the temporary injunction. The school districts asked the appeals court to reverse the injunction, but on Tuesday, a three-judge panel saw, quote, no reason to do so. Judge uh, Diane Wood wrote for the court in her opinion, Litigation over transgender rights is occurring all over the country, and we assume that at some point the Supreme Court will step in with more guidance than it has furnished so far, she added. The judges found that the district courts had been correct in concluding that the students were likely to succeed in their claims of discrimination. The ruling to the appropriate, I'm sorry, the ruling was applauded by Kenneth Falk who's an attorney with the ACLU of Indiana, quote, Students who are denied access to the appropriate facilities are caused both serious, serious emotional and physical harm as they are denied recognition of who they are. They will often avoid using the restroom altogether while in school, folks said. Schools should be a safe place for kids, and the refusal to allow a student to use the correct facilities can be extremely damaging. This quote right here, this isn't for me. How safe do the girls feel having a biological male in their locker or bathroom? Is their safety not a priority? Loudoun County called. You should probably pick up. Um, In what I think is Biden's fifth embassy evacuation, his State Department has ordered the evacuation of non-emergency personnel and family members from Niger following last week's military takeover. On July 26th, President Mohamed Batsoum was placed under house arrest amidst efforts to overthrow the democratically elected government of Niger. Subsequent events have severely limited flight options, said the State Department. Uh, Given this development on August 2nd, the department ordered the departure of non-emergency U.S. government employees and eligible family members from Embassy Niamey. And the U.S. Embassy in Niamey has temporarily reduced its personnel, suspended routine services, is only able to provide emergency assistance to U.S. citizens in Niger. It's got to be comforting to hear, right? Hey, uh, look, shit's gotten too real, so we're going to bounce and won't be offering routine services for you. Good luck. Now, of course, CNN wants to be clear. 
an ordered departure does not mean that the U.S. is shuttering its embassy or evacuating all of its diplomats and the roughly 1,100 U.S. troops that are in Niger. Those, those aren't expected to leave the country at this point. Uh, two um, officials have said that the capital city of Niamey remains relatively calm. Is, is the CNN reporting? So is this like mostly peaceful protests? Again, I, I don't know. Um, don't worry. This one isn't a total failure, guys. We're not even going to talk about the fact that Blinken and Biden are so abysmal that this has happened four other times. We're just going to ignore that part. Uh, the U.S. has not formally decided if the situation constitutes a coup, a designation that would require the United States to cut foreign and military assistance to the Nigerian government. There is no time frame in which the U.S. is required to make a coup designation. For now, there are intensive diplomatic efforts underway to restore democratically elected Batsum to power. We're working really, really hard to see if we can turn this around, a senior State Department official said on Monday. Since the situation is not set in concrete, we think we should try and take that opportunity. The United States remains committed to our relationship with the people of Niger and to Nigerian democracy. We remain diplomatically engaged at the highest levels, Miller said in his statement, noting the recent Senate confirmation of a new U.S. ambassador to Niger, career diplomat Kathleen Fitzgibbon. Oh, good. A woman will be exactly what this situation needs. That was a really smart move to send a woman to handle a military coup in a 98% Muslim country, mostly Sunni to be specific. They will definitely respect her opinions and suggestions so much. Gotta love democracy. The next story is so messed up. Um, I have I have feelings about this. Um, I have very few investigative journalists that I actually respect and believe when they report. Catherine Herridge is one of them. She is one of the most thorough and detailed people I have ever seen. She publicly documents her personal notes constantly. She's diligent and purposeful. Judge Christopher Cooper of the U.S. District Court of District of Columbia issued a ruling that compels Catherine Herridge to participate in a deposition regarding the identity of a confidential source or sources that she used in a series of 2017 stories published while she worked at Fox News. Yep, you heard me. The implications of this decision are huge. The order came as a result of a lawsuit filed by a Chinese-American scientist, Yanping Chen, Against the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Oh, the FBI's fucking up again? God, I'm so surprised by this. Citing documents reviewed by Fox News, Harridge reported that Chen was the subject of a federal counterintelligence probe. Chen has alleged that federal authorities improperly leaked information about her violating the Privacy Act. Man, that Chinese money must have got cut off. She's pissed. In an effort to prove her case, Chen subpoenaed Herridge and Fox News with the hope 
of unmasking the sources for the stories. Fox News and Heritage have aggressively fought the move, arguing that Cooper should quash the subpoenas because of First Amendment protections afforded to the press. But Cooper disagreed with Fox News and Heritage in his Tuesday decision. The court recognizes both the vital importance of a free press and the critical role that confidential sources play in the work of investigative journalists like Carriage, Cooper wrote in the ruling, but applying the binding case law of this circuit, the court concludes that Chen's need for the requested evidence overcomes Herridge's qualified First Amendment privilege in this case. Did you hear that? Chen's need for the evidence overcomes the First Amendment. Cooper was appointed to the bench by Barack Obama, while Herridge and Fox News are being represented by Patrick Philbin, who served as Deputy White House Counsel under Donald Trump. Both former administrations were known for their aggressive hunting of leakers. The judge limited Chen's subpoena to a deposition for now. However, it's unclear whether Herridge or Fox News will comply with the order. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. We're currently attempting to extradite a journalist to sentence him for crimes that he didn't commit because Daddy Gov didn't like what was published on his website. The case has renewed calls for Congress to pass legislation offering federal protections to journalists. In June, a bipartisan group of lawmakers reintroduced the, quote, Protect Reporters from Exploitive State Spying Act or as it is more commonly known, the Press Act. The legislation would offer important safeguards to journalists, including preventing the government from compelling reporters to disclose their sources. I really hate when this shit happens. This is redundant. We have the First Amendment already. It protects religion, speech, expression, the press, petitioning your government for grievances, There is no need for anything else. It's already a thing. We don't need more laws. Just follow the fucking Constitution as it's written. Requiring journalists to reveal their confidential sources deters whistleblowers and others from coming forward, meaning the public has less access to information, which, let's be honest, that's the point. The court's decision in the Heritage case shows the limits of current protections for journalists and sources. No, it just shows a judge who's egregious in his interpretation of the Constitution, and it needs to go to a higher court. I hope she's able to stick to her guns. Her credibility and reputation are wrecked if she caves. But shame on the judge for trying to compel information that he is not entitled to. Okay, so I know that people believe that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are running for president, but I'm strongly feeling like neither of them will be standing on the debate stage come primary time. Why do I feel that way? Well, you didn't ask, but I'm going to pretend you did. Uh, Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom have tentatively agreed to a debate hosted by Fox News. The Florida Republican and California Democrat have repeatedly sparred over policies in their respective states, each representing one side of the ideological spectrum through though occupying different political perches. DeSantis, a Republican, is trailing former President Donald Trump for the Republican 
nomination, while Newsom, a Democrat, has brushed aside questions about his own presidential ambitions to become a super surrogate of sorts for Joe Biden. A showdown between the two seemed unlikely as DeSantis ramped up his presidential campaign, but Newsom still has spent months trying to entice his counterpart into joining him on stage. On Wednesday, DeSantis agreed, telling Fox News' Sean Hannity, absolutely, I'm game, just tell me when and where. An aide to Newsom told Politico that the governor was also in. Uh, Newsom's office had sent a formal request offer to Fox News last week with proposed debate dates for November 10th or 8th. That request called for Hannity to serve as the sole moderator for a 90-minute forum on Fox News that would not include an in-studio audience, but would air live. DeSantis should put up or shut up. Anything else is just games, said the aide. A debate would, to put it mildly, be an unprecedented event, a typo, in modern presidential politics, even in an age of seemingly endless cable news town halls. For DeSantis, it would provide a new venue and opponent to contrast his record in Florida after spending weeks bogged down in process stories about layoffs, tightened campaign budgets, and nervous GOP donors. Newsom, should a debate happen, would feel the weight of his political party on his shoulders under a national spotlight brighter than he's ever experienced before, like he did when he sat down with Hannity um, in his interview, he would be forced to defend attacks about the progressive policies in his own state as well as Joe Biden's record. In his letter, Newsom's office proposed three separate debate sites, Nevada, Georgia, or North Carolina. That is your Friday edition of everything yesterday this morning. We will have Liberty Happy Hour this evening. Uh, My daughter is back on her regular gymnastics schedule, so we will begin at 10.15 Eastern Standard Time. Please join us on Twitter Spaces. You can join the conversation and let me know how you feel about all of the stuff that we discussed on the show this week. You guys take care. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you on Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shopsinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.